This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 463. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. And I am your host, Riley Bowman, and I'll just throw out there, you know, if it's been a while since you've been reminded of this, but when we say the ConcealedCarry.com network of shows, we mean the Concealed Carry Podcast, but also the Firearm Trainers Podcast and the the relatively new on-duty, off-duty podcast, and also Not Your Average Gun Girls Podcast, all part of the same same network of shows. We're, we're proud to have all those shows uh, as part of our family. Of course, the Concealed Carry Podcast being the uh, longest running show. And uh, here we are. Golly, coming up on be five years in February. And I can't even believe that. Uh, by that point, we'll be almost to 500 episodes too. My goodness. Guys, today is going to be a great episode. I am super excited to introduce to you momentarily a special guest. And uh, we'll bring him on in a moment. But real quick, today's episode is sponsored by CCW Safe. Yep, CCWSafe.com is the place to find them. And guys, you know, you can save 10% off a CCW Safe membership if you use the coupon code CC Podcast from. From the Concealed Carry Podcast, obviously. So CC Podcast will save you 10%. You could actually save 20% if you also become a member of Guardian Nation, which is our special members' awesomeness. <laughs> the place for guardians and like-minded individuals to collect, to come together, to study, to train, to learn. And guys, uh, super excited uh, to see that community continue to grow. And we've got some really exciting things coming up in the net, in the coming year. 2020 has been a interesting and perhaps for many of you a rough year. Uh, 2021, regardless of what happens in the world, at least here at ConcealedCarry.com and Guardian Nation, things are going to be awesome. I'll just say that much. All right. I'm super excited to uh, hear, hear relatively in, in the relative near future, we will be bringing some some fun news to you all um all right so also we have an honorary sponsor if you will but it makes sense if i bring on our special guest and introduce him and his company and so let's do that now we've got here with me mr aj zito from practicalperformance.org that's your that's your website right aj that is correct. Yes. Awesome. And there he is. There's the man himself, the bearded beast of a shooter. <laughs> Tim Heron, uh, barrel drill number two patch holder. And I'm number five. Hey, we yep. got something in common. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> so, dude, what is up? What's up, man? <laughs> yeah, I think, weren't you the first one to do it without a 1911, though? I think oh, I, you were. I don't know that. I think so. Really? I think so. Hmm. You should be very proud of that. I mean, the only way to do it is with a 1911, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll let we'll let you take it. <laughs> yes, I shot it with my uh, my uh, 320 X5 uh, Legion. Nice. With nice. with with an optic. So if if that was cheating somehow, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but that that is a challenging drill because. Mm-hmm. 
it, there's just so much going on, you know, you got to get these, all these shots on target and keep all of your split times within, within a 10th of a second of each other. Uh, I, the only thing I could say is that I have a background in music and I think that helped me somewhat. Cause I just put it in my, I remember standing there getting ready and just going, okay, here's my tempo. <laughs> yep, <laughs> and I'm just going to exactly. stick to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I was I was a drummer for a lot of years, and that was the whole thing I was thinking about. Like, bro, I just need to boom, 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 boom. Yep. Just knock it out like that. And I mean, it that thing ate a lot of people's lunches, man. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. You see guys trying blaze ops through it, and it's just like, no, no, <laughs> that's not good. And yep. you missed. You missed the target. <laughs> yep. But it happens. Yeah, yeah. it's a good drill. Exceedingly difficult. It really, yes, it is. Uh, Anyway, yes, Tim Heron, great instructor. Uh, You and I both know him, obviously. But uh, Mm -hmm. let's let's get to know AJ Zito, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, So, tell us a little bit about yourself, AJ. Uh, I I know that you're you're a veteran, a U.S. Army veteran. But so you know, let's go back in history a little bit. You know, how did you get to where you are now? Oh man. Lots of poor life choices. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I was in the Army. Um, I uh, went to college in Vermont, and uh, I graduated, went into the Army after that, uh, where I got stationed in Georgia, Fort Stewart. Um, so spent about three years uh, there, well, year and a half on Iraq, and then the rest of the time at Fort Stewart. Um, and then, uh, once it was time for me to leave, (laughs) I basically jumped in my car. I had no place to go, uh, no idea what I was going to do. And, uh, one of, you know, I got to do some cool stuff in the military, but one of the the things I got to do was I got tasked out as a, uh, liaison to, uh, the secret service, uh, counter assault teams, um, for vice president Cheney, which was super cool. And I was like, Hey, so this protection thing, this <laughs> seems pretty sweet. I want to get in on this. And, uh, a, a buddy at the time was like, listen, man, if you're serious about this, you need to check out this place, uh, out in Colorado. So I got out of the army, packed up my apartment and started driving to Colorado with literally everything I had in my in my, uh, I think I had a blazer at the time. So everything in my blazer and went to Colorado, did some training for about, uh, 30 days. And after that, I was so sure that I was just going to pick up a contract like that and go, go do good things in foreign countries. And that was not at all the case. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, uh, I called up a buddy, uh, who lived in Arizona and I said, hey, man, can I crash on your couch for a couple days till I figure this out? He's like, sure, no problem. So uh, I stayed there for three years. <laughs> not, not on his couch the entire time. But uh, uh, after about three weeks there, I was like, listen, I should probably find a place to live uh, uh, or do something. Um, but at the time, I was working uh, executive protection around the Phoenix area and throughout, uh, Arizona. So, which was good. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the entire thing about it was 
I was always kind of waiting for something overseas. So I was like, oh, I'll fill my time with, you know, regular executive protection stuff until a PSD kicks off and, and something I can do. At the same time, I got offered a teaching gig, right, from the company in Colorado that I that I had previously been a student at. So that was 2009. Um, and I just started teaching there and I taught there for several years, uh, kind of, <laughs> kind of the whole, the whole thing, just like, okay, I'll just wait for something to kick off. And, you know, I applied to all the, the teaching contracts and everything like that. And, uh, right about 2014, I think, uh, there was a mass exodus from this place I was, I was working. Uh, I was one of those to leave. And one of the things that happened at the time was we had a, a bunch of rental firearms and stuff like that for the student base. And those obviously had to be kept running, uh, you know, ARs, Glocks, stuff like that, your standard issue kind of stuff. And I was already <laughs> fixing all of the, the company's guns at that point when I wasn't teaching. So it'd be like, okay, we're going to take like a half hour break. So I would run down, you know, swap out a handguard on an AR or fix it, you know, a broken extractor and a bolt or something. Uh, And when I kind of figured, you know, I I don't know about this contracting thing anymore. It's not exactly what it used to be. And this is getting a little, not my thing anymore. And I thought, you know, I'm already fixing guns. Uh, I might as well go somewhere and like get certified in it and maybe yeah. get paid money to do it. Um, and at the time, I mean, I was in love with custom 1911s and 2011s. I just thought they were amazing. Uh, I had one built years before um, by Bob Miller of Miller Custom, and uh, I just loved them. So, I moved to Arizona to go to gunsmithing school and about halfway through my first year, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this from now on. So, uh, that was, that was about it. So I finished, I finished school there, uh, took, uh, two years and then they have an additional program there where you, I hate, I hate to use this term, but this is what they call the program. Okay. So I will, they have a master gunsmith program. That is what they call it. I hate, the term, but that is what they call it. Okay. Uh, so I did that. And while I was there, they offered me a job teaching there. So for the last few years, I've been teaching gunsmithing as well at uh, a college out here in Arizona. So, and uh, yeah, so that's about it. That's the history. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome, man. Well, you know, in mixed in with a lot of that history. I mean, there, there's obviously shooting that's occurring. Uh, what I know is that in relatively recent history in the last year or so, uh, you, you've, you've really come up, you know, you're, you're a master class USPSA shooter. Um, I, I, I saw, you, you know, how you finished at uh, single stack nationals, which was very respectable. Thank you. Um, you know, your multi-division uh, master class IDPA shooter. Uh, and, and, and which is also very respectable. So, you know, I mean, you're, you're clearly a shooter. You're a guy that knows how to shoot, but you're also, what you're telling us is you also build guns too, which yeah. is really cool. And I find that, you know, intriguing because we don't, 
those two things don't always go hand in hand. You see some guys that are really amazing gun builders and gunsmiths and are just okay shooters. Uh, you see some guys that are amazing shooters, but you know, and, and they can do, you know, they can, they can swap out some springs or do some, you know, maintenance type work on the guns, but, but they're not turning out, you know, uh, whether it's checkering or something or, 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 uh, you know, really doing some, some fancy work to like a high end 2011 or something like, you know, some of the stuff you're doing. So, um, but I know that in the early days of particularly practical pistol shooting, it was pretty, it was, I, I would say my, my, and I could be wrong in this. My impression is there was quite a few shooters that also did a lot of work and a lot of tinkering in their guns. I mean, even talking with a guy like Rob Latham, for instance, or, or Brian Enos and, and Rob will tell me about all the stuff they used to tweak and mess with and, you know, stuff he messed up and broke or, or was too aggressive, you know, just always trying to tweak and make things better uh, because at the same time he was trying to always level up his game as a shooter you know, friends of mine like uh, Bruce Gray, you know, it was well known. You know, he's been shooting for a long time competitively, but also building guns into customer for a long time as well. So, um, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, a, a, I guess, a, a little bit of a newer up and comer in that, in that world. But uh, by all accounts, I mean, I've, I've heard but nothing but good things about the work you're doing, but also, um, the shooting you're doing and the teaching you're doing too, which I think is really great. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it's, um, it's funny because you look at kind of the early, the early IPSC, early USPSA guys, and they were tinkerers all the time, man. I mean, uh, even, even outside of USPSA, I tell you, one of my favorite uh, stories is, how Jim Clark senior Clark custom guns, mm. right. Uh, kind of how he made his way where it was bullseye at the time, but you could apply this to really anyone, you know, he would get a, a rattly old Colt, tune it up, go to a bullseye match, win the bullseye match. Someone would offer him money at that match for his gun and he would sell it to them and then go home and build another one. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's how Clark custom guns started, which is, which is amazing. But yeah, I mean, look at all, you know, really all the early um, gunsmiths, it seems like had, and I'm, I mean, there've been gunsmiths forever, but since there's been guns, <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the more modern 1911, 2011 guys, which is really, you know, where I kind of live, uh, almost all of them are competitive shooters or were competitive shooters during the early days of competition. And, you know, you had to mess with your stuff. You know, there wasn't uh, it was not a Glock world at the time. You could not pop something out and pop something in and be like, Oh, look, I have a two pound trigger. Now it worked great. Uh, that was <laughs> how we play. Not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> you couldn't, you could not do that. And, uh, something about that really appeals to me, how the, the level of meticulous detail that's required for that. And, uh, and shooting is really no different. Uh, there there's an, a, an extreme attention to detail, no matter what kind of shooting you're doing that, that 
if you really want to take it to the highest levels capable, much like a gun, uh, you, you have to be able to recognize those, those minute details and things like that. So. Yeah. Hey, we have a comment here from apparently yeah. a student of yours. Hey man, good to see you. How are you? <laughs> Terry Carter here saying he, he's taking some classes, uh, from, from you, AJ. And, and, uh, that's pretty cool. Awesome. I'm yeah. glad that we have somebody watching that's, uh, come through some of your classies. Sorry, I kind of yeah. interrupted you there by you no, know, up on the screen, but um, yeah, you know, so, okay. So this was kind of a little bit of along the lines of what you and I were talking about before we began uh, the, the show today is uh, we were kind of talking a little bit about, uh, you know, modifications that people might make or do to their guns. And, and I kind of like to pick your brain a little bit about, you know, what, what do you think if someone's like, let's say somebody goes and buys a Glock or maybe they buy a 320 or an M&P, which, you know, obviously those are, pla- those are examples of plastic guns. Sure. Uh, that's pretty common, you know, for particularly somebody that's just getting into maybe practical shooting, competitive shooting sports, because it's a relatively low barrier of entry, you know, go buy a 500, $600, $700 gun. And then the next weekend they're out at the matches shooting. Right. So, taking it from kind of that angle and we can, we can come to the custom stuff a little bit more later, but what do you, as someone is shooting a stock pistol, right? And there's nothing wrong with shooting a stock pistol, but what's your take AJ on like, what are some of the things you see in a stock factory built gun that maybe is, you know, has a tendency of hindering shooters sometimes as far as reaching their goals in, in performance. Sure. Absolutely. And I mean, let me, let me start by saying picking up a, a, a plastic, a six, seven, four, five hundred dollar gun to get into shooting is a, is a great way to do it. And a hundred percent, I fully endorse that. Mm-hmm. You know, you do not need to get into this game by buying a $4,000 gun at all. You can be absolutely competitive, but there are things that absolutely uh, you can address uh, and, you know, this all goes back again, right? My company's name is Practical Performance. So everything we're going to do to a gun, as far as I'm concerned, number one, it has to be practical, right? And and if it's not practical, it probably doesn't belong anywhere in or on the gun. Uh, secondly, it has to perform just like a shooter. You know, when it, when it's go time, it needs to go. It needs to not hold you back from things, right? So. The number one thing I tell guys, if, if they're going to start modifying guns uh, and probably the best thing you can do, get yourself a good set of sights. Uh, get rid of these placeholders that are that are sitting in there. And don't get me wrong. Some guns come with decent sights. Um, and by decent, I mean they're relatively square and, and you can kind of see them. And that's, that's nice, <laughs> right? Uh, but get yourself some, some legit sites from someone that knows what they're doing with, with sites, you know, Dawson precision, uh, 10, eight performance. I, I've been a huge fan of Hilton's sites since, you know, he was writing in SWAT magazine. I've had 10, eight rears on pretty much all my guns forever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, front sights, Dawson fiber optic sights. Now, I'm a huge fiber optic fan for all applications because if you understand the application of how you're using those sights, they make the most sense to me. I'm not saying tritium sights don't have their place. They absolutely do. 
but I'm I'm a huge fiber optic fan. That's me. I understand the limitations. The other thing is you really do need to understand the limitations of what sighting system you're going to use. Granted, I'm a little spoiled. I like to shoot red dots. You know, if you're going to shoot red dots, great. But as a simple modification, a great set of iron sights uh, is probably the first thing you need to do. Mm-hmm. The second and probably most overlooked thing, and, and I go back and forth between this and the next thing um, as to which is more important, but what you can do right now, stop using the factory recoil springs in the gun. Mm-hmm. Every gun from the factory is way oversprung, okay? The, and they do that for reliability, which in most cases doesn't make the gun any more reliable because there is a ratio that has to go on. So get your gun sprung correctly, because that's Mm -hmm. gonna change how the gun is gonna feel, it's gonna change how the gun operates. You know, a a standard Glock 17 comes with a 17 17 or 18 pound recoil spring in it. For a nine mil, like, no, that's (laughs) way oversprung. And then people are like, I, I have ejection issues. I have extraction issues. I don't understand what's happening. My brass is doing all sorts of crazy stuff all the time. It's like, yeah, well, your gun's way oversprung. And every time I shoot the gun, the muzzle goes way down and then comes back up. It's like, yeah, change it. Put a 15 in there, right? Do something, play with some recoil springs. Talk to someone who knows what they're doing about tuning recoil springs and make the gun shoot the way it's supposed to shoot. And oh, by the way, there's a happy ratio between the magazine spring and the recoil spring that's going to make that gun shoot and and operate better. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's always, you know, one thing I highly suggest guys do. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I was pretty oblivious to something like that uh, up until a few years ago uh, because I'd buy a gun and I pretty much would run it stock sure. uh, in, in, in most contexts, even in my beginning competition days, I was just running a stock gun and still beating the socks off of some guys with very expensive guns. Uh, you know, I wasn't, wasn't quite the level I am now, but, but I was shooting pretty well and, you know, guys would be like, what have you done to your gun? I'm like, I bought it and picked it up off the shelf and, and I shoot it. Yep. <laughs> you know? But the first time I shot, a uh so i completely agree as far as most factory guns are oversprung because the probably the first experience of a gun that i own that i shot and went oh that's different that seems smoother for instance and that was the very first p320 x5 because here was a factory gun but it came from the factory with like a 14 pound spring yep you know which was a lot more reasonable <laughs> rather than these other things with 16 and 17 and 18 pound springs that I've been shooting for years. And, and for a long time, I couldn't even articulate what was different about it in that way. Like it, like, well, I think it's this, or I think it's that, I think the spring, you know, I don't know, like, uh, but it's, but what you're saying is, is very true. I mean, I, I think uh, manufacturers, uh, nobody wants to be in the, in the boat as a, as a major, gun manufacturer of releasing a new gun and then getting all these reports of reliability concerns, which has happened. And you know, then it lo- it reflects very poorly on their brand. And, and, and we have to keep in mind that 
they're they're building and selling a gun that is going to be owned by everybody from a first time gun owner to you know very ex- uh, experienced guys and everything and everybody in between and then amongst all those different variables of gun owners and and skill levels you've got thousands of combinations of different ammunition uh, uh you know combinations that are being used as well you know everything from cheap 115 grain Winchester white box, which is not super awesome to, you know, much nicer uh, ammo that might be out there, factory ammo, or also, you know, uh, you, you have people shooting reloaded ammo. So, you know, I think I don't, that's my impression is that a gun comes from a factory probably oversprung in, in that manner because they're trying to make sure that it will run optimally for, what you know 80 percent of people are probably going to shoot which is cheap nasty you know 115 grain you know fat or uh uh, target ammo yeah oh absolutely correct absolutely correct and they you know they also bank on the fact that uh their end user is never going to replace that recoil spring during its maintenance life True. Uh, so they're just going to shoot that gun until that gun doesn't shoot anymore. <laughs> uh, and if that's, you know, 500 rounds then that's 500 rounds, if that's 30,000 rounds, well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I am embarrassed to say I had a good friend that, uh, he was so proud that he had never changed a spring in his gun ever, ever, ever. And he had well over 65,000 rounds through that gun. And I said, <laughs> why? I mean, his slide was cracked. Everything was just, this gun was done. But he was really proud. He never changed a spring in that gun ever. And I was like, bro, why? Why? Why'd you do that? So, I suppose on one hand, uh, you know, you could say that 65,000 rounds, you got your money's worth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's true. It's true. But, I mean, that gun could have gone a lot longer. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, you know, I got a comment recently about uh, one of my videos. They're like, wow, your your gun looks really well tuned with your ammo. And I'm like, well, why, thank you. I, I actually started kind of figuring some of this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And, and it's amazing the difference it makes because uh, you talked about sights, AJ. And I, I'm going to kind of kind of morph what we're talking about right now back into where you started with talking about sights. And something I didn't understand for the longest time, and, and maybe you could touch on this, was that the the way I was running my guns with the factory, you know, stock configuration with cheap target or practice grade ammunition, you know, I'm shooting, right? And people would talk about, say, stuff like tracking your sights, right? Or calling sure. shots and doing things faster and at speed. And I'm like, how are you seeing that? Or how are you seeing that well enough to have that confidence in calling your shot? Because to me, I see my site and it's doing this, you know, it's just like going all over the place. Right. And I finally figured out, you know, that, that, well, it, 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 my sites were not tracking very predictably because things weren't tuned very well. So it was very, uh, the action of the gun was very abrupt. I guess is what I would describe it as. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so here's, here's the things, right. And uh, so this is one of my favorite things to talk about in classes. 
right? Mm-hmm. Let's, and this is one of the huge benefits I think about being a gunsmith and a shooter. So I'm going to tell, and you might know this, some guys might not actually have ever heard this. Um, recoil does not just operate in one direction, mm. right? Recoil moves both to the rear and back forward because we have the compression of our recoil spring and the decompression of our recoil spring, which sends our gun back forward, right? This is classically when we see our gun dip past or our sights drop down from us, right? That's the other half of, of recoil. And really it's recoil recovery. And we always see a lot of guys trying to help that happening, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, One nice thing about a properly tuned gun is with the proper amount of grip pressure, the gun wants to come back to the same place it started, right? It, it, It wants to return as quickly as humanly possible. That's why we lighten, you know, slides on guns so that it can return uh, faster. It's also why we, you know, tune the spring. But what it's going to do is it's going to cause that site to try and return as close as possible to the place that it started. Um, when we overspring a gun, that's what we get, right? That thing just bounces all over. Now there's, there's two things to it, right? There's tuning a gun and there's tuning a shooter now Mm -hmm. you can you can tune just a gun right and that will get you part of the way i can put the right recoil spring in your gun for your ammo and that will get you mostly there right it'll start causing your sight to become more predictable but the other part about it right and this is why we do classes and why we do so much practice is you have to tune the shooter to what's happening with the gun. And that's what makes it predictable. So if I make the gun predictable, and if I make myself consistent, specifically with how much pressure I'm applying uh, in my grip forces and how my upper body is set, especially how I set my elbows, um, you know, and how I relax my upper body and my arms, and I let recoil happen, and then I just recover from it after, the gun becomes ridiculously predictable. And that's when I start seeing sites just do that. And Lift all and I have, Exactly. And, you know, red dots are awesome to see this on because you see everything with the red dot. If you're shooting them correctly, you see everything with them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you will just watch that dot shoot straight up, straight down, straight up, straight down. Uh, what's really cool is when you start seeing it with like your iron sights as well. Because it's it's harder to pick up on iron sights. That is my belief on it, at least, because yeah. you're, you're not getting as much input and it is very violent as to what's happening. Um, and then you start to see it with your iron sights and it's amazing. But it's, it's a lot to do with both tuning the gun and tuning the shooter. Now, don't get me wrong. You can absolutely tune the shooter and not tune the gun. Um, it can be done, but it's it's a lot easier if we just tune both and make them meet in the middle. Mm. So yeah, yeah, making that gun predictable. Uh, I mean, that's <laughs> almost all of my practice in, in the things I do has to do with the predictability of the gun. And, and mm. in my classes, we talk a lot about getting the gun to return to the same spot every time when we want it to, there's times we don't want it to, but um, that's a, that's a huge deal. And making those sites predictable every time. Yeah, yeah, man, those are, those are great observations. Uh, you know, this is really important because 
you know, you can, I can remember one of the first times I shot, I saw in person a really skilled shooter shoot. And I remember kind of thinking how, how could they do what they just did at the speed they did it at? Like, there's no way they're aiming that, that gun on every shot, right? There's no way they can see their sights that fast. Right. And, and, and the thing is, is when you, when you make a gun more predictable and when you also apply yourself in a way that like you're talking about, I like, I love this concept of tuning the shooter. Then seeing that stuff is so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> so much absolutely. easier. <laughs> and, absolutely. And, and it's amazing what you can actually see at speed. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll everybody, you, man, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I'll tell you, I, there, there are videos, um, not, you know, not, not that I'm an incredibly fast shooter or anything of that nature, but I'll watch a video and I'll be like, man, that looked pretty fast, but I shot the stage. Like I'm the one in the video. It <laughs> did not seem that fast at all when I was shooting it. I remember, you know, you're going through and you're like, man, this is so slow. All right. Well, <laughs> I'll just watch these sites lift and keep going about it. And then you watch it and you're like, whoa, yeah, your visual input is huge, especially when you, you know, you really learn to open up your awareness and, and your, you know, your mm -hmm. amount of vision. It's awesome. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you yeah. off, but no, you're exactly, you're exactly right, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All that because everybody wants to shoot more accurately faster. And, and like what we're talking about right here, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of factors at play here, but, but in terms of talking about our equipment and how it, is paired with the shooter like this is so important so fiber optic sight you you start talking talk about fiber optic sights um i i love fiber optic uh sights i love having a fiber optic front and a, and a blacked out rear um because w the way i run that these days is kind of like a red dot i look for you know that that dot of that fiber optic somewhere in that rear yeah. window of my rear sight and when I see that in there and I see it on the target, pretty much tells me I can take a shot for a long time. I ran, you know, the sites like what everybody else runs, like three dot sites. And it doesn't like visually there's too much going on, you know, Sure. and, and it's a little bit harder to, I think, you know, basically when I'm trying to shoot at my best, I can't have distractions of really any kind there's going to be distractions but i need to limit them as much as i can and so that's why running a red dot's so awesome because it's it's so simple it's like look at target see dot when you see it you know in the acceptable area you send the shot with irons we got a little bit more stuff to line up and if we overcomplicate that site picture and add stuff that honestly doesn't really need to be there then we're just adding distractions and the brain, whether we realize it or not, is having to decipher what is what and what is, and where's the relationship of things to other things, meaning front sight to rear sight to target. We need that to be really simple and straightforward is my, is my opinion these days. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on, man. And you know, one the way I kind of explain this concept to guys is right. You can see everything right? Mm -hmm. Everything in front of you, you have the capability of seeing. However, you only have so much you can be aware of at any given time. So why, if I can be aware of one thing, 
let's say the dot, or really, if I can be aware of two things, the target and the dot, or the target and the front sight. Why would I need to then be aware of, or why would it be better to be aware of three things, right? Now these two little dots that I have on the rear sight, plus the dot I have on the front sight, plus now my target. It doesn't, you know, now I'm splitting how much attention I can give to everything. And, you know, I'm, I don't know if I shoot kind of weird, um, which isn't, it's not, I don't even know how to explain it really. Uh, the best way I can explain it to guys is that I pretty much shoot iron sights like a red dot, just like you said. Um, there is, there is a, I am far more focused on my target than I am on my sights. Uh, and three dot sights make that even worse, right? Uh, they want you to look at them. Well, if you have, you know, if I have two things screaming for attention right in front of my face and one thing screaming for attention out here, I'm going to look at things closer to my face. Cause that's what we do. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, and that, you know, causes all the issues with three dot sights versus, you know, a fiber optic front sight. Well, I can be aware of the target and I can be aware of this red thing. My, my fiber's red or green thing or blue thing or yellow thing, whatever you want. Uh, I can be aware of that out there. It's the same thing with a red dot. I can give my attention or my awareness to the target and this dot thing can just do what it needs to do. And when it's where I need it to be, I just break the trigger and it's mm -hmm. good to go. Yeah. So staying true to our practical discussion today, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there for sure is a competitive world out there and, and a lot of things, people may be hearing even a lot of what we're talking about and thinking, well, that's fine for you competitive types, but how would you apply a lot of this conversation at this point to the defensive context, a concealed carry context? Sure. So uh, first off, all of this applies defensively. Uh, shooting is shooting. And it took me a long time to understand that because the world I came out of was, you know, it was defensive or offensive shooting all the time, right? It was three by five cards at 25 yards. And if you drop a shot, you know, people are dead and that's the way it is. Um, you know, everything we did was defensive oriented. And it wasn't until... 2013, I think that I even found competitive shooting because I, you know, kind of set the ego aside because I came around a bunch of dudes that were like, listen, bro, you're going to get killed in the streets if you go down this competition stuff. And I'm like, yeah, man. Yeah, we do it for reals. And then <laughs> I realized that compared to these competitive shooters, we can't really shoot at all. So <laughs> we should maybe figure this out. Um, but I was, you know, I was dead on. I didn't go to the range without, uh, you know, concealment garment, uh, at the time I didn't practice from three o'clock. I didn't pr practice from, or I should say practice without concealment from a, a gamer rig. I didn't even own a gamer rig. Right. Um, so everything I did was defensive oriented. And the thing I found was when I plateaued, I had a good year or two years where I was not just, I could not get better to save my life. I could not get better. And then I found competitive shooting and I got faster. I got, I hate to say more accurate because let's face it. It's really not that difficult to be an accurate shooter. It all depends on what your level of accuracy is. If we're talking punching 10 rings at 50 yards, 
Sure, we can all strive to get better at that. I would love to be able to do that consistently. But is that worth my time as a defensive shooter? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, You know, here's one of the biggest problems for defensive versus competitive shooters. Our mindsets tend to be in the wrong spot. We don't get me wrong. Like accuracy is so important defensively, but speed is so important defensively. And we seem to want to ignore that uh, as, as defensive shooters and think that accuracy is final. Accuracy is king. Accuracy is everything. Yeah. To a point. But if it takes me three seconds to punch that center X ring, man, I'm super accurate, but I'm also dead. So I guess it doesn't really matter versus the dude, you know, that can whip a shot into an A zone or an IDPA eight inch circle or a four by six card, whatever it is, Uh, whatever your acceptable, you know, scoring area or target area, as I refer to them, is uh, the guy that can do that in a second and a half or less, he's going to win defensively, he is going to win. Um, And honestly, the best defensive shooters I know are also competitive shooters. Don't get me wrong. There are guys out there that are purely defensive base shooters and they are great shooters. Uh, But one thing I I see over and over again is the best defensive shooters have some form of competition in their, in their background or in their, you know, in their normal life. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just the way it goes because, you know, it's always funny to me too, right? We do this co- competition versus defensive thing, and, which I think is ridiculous because we're all, our goal is all the same. We all want to be better shooters. So why can't we, you know, co-mingle and walk both lines of this world and, and learn stuff from each other? Because, you know, oh, tell me about this, this, why you would, you know, roll into a room and roll right instead of left and do this and that. Tell me about that. And I'll tell you why I spend so much time shooting bill drills, which you think might be a waste of my time and and ammo. You know, uh, I think there's a lot we're giving up by (laughs) dividing this, this group of defensive and competitive shooters. And again, all the best competitive shooters I know are, are, are defensive shooters as well. They all, I don't know a single a serious competitive shooter that doesn't carry a gun pretty much every day of his life anyways. And a lot of them are, you know, law enforcement, military, uh, concealed carriers. I mean, every one of them carries a gun pretty much every day. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I wish, I wish this line between competition and and carry would just go away because really it doesn't matter. I mean, if, if we're talking straight up, you know, 2011 race gun with a, a six inch comp on the end shooting, shooting 38 super comp with a, with a, you know, a a frame mounted Seymour red dot that I, that I can't conceal anywhere. Okay. I get that. Right. (laughs) That's not practical for, for a defensive shooter. Um, but I, I don't understand ever how shooting faster and, and accurately enough is ever a bad thing. Yep. You know? Um, and again, going again, trying to reel this back into the, the defensive stuff, uh, you know, shooting is shooting. If I can, if I can shoot a zones, right. Which is a realistic expectation, uh, defensively. If I can shoot a zones, uh, 
you know, I'll use a build drill, for example, six rounds at seven yards to an A zone. Um, if I can do that in two seconds, that's, that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good from concealment. Uh, now, what's a competitive shooter going to do? He's going to try and do it in 1.9. Well, a defensive shooter should be doing exactly the same thing. What can get me there? All right. Maybe if I saw a little better or if I saw things a little easier, maybe I could get down to a 1.9, which, oh, by the way, I, seeing in a defensive situation is only going to be better. If I can open up, you know, if I can open up my vision and open up my awareness defensively, uh, things are just going to get better for me. Uh, you know, a lot of guys refer to it as processor speed, and I'm a huge, huge believer in opening up processor speed and and being able to see and and process more uh, uh, easily, right? So. Yeah, it all applies. Anything that makes my life easier competitively probably makes my life easier uh, defensively as well. And I'm going to apply that. Now, there's certain things competitively I'm not going to do. Uh, I'm sorry, defensively, I'm not going to do that I would do competitively, like run an open rig with six mags on my <laughs> on my side. And, you know, I don't I don't do that. But I mean, I think it's hilarious. My <laughs> my carry gun is basically an open class gun <laughs> i can't i can't shoot it in any other division but open class <laughs> right um because as, as uh one of my buddies has put uh uh gunfighting is an open class event no matter what so yep. and that's that's how i i believe it i get away with as much as i possibly can you, you know you you run what you brung to the gunfight exactly and <laughs> i'll tell you i'm gonna bring i'm, I'm gonna bring as much gun as i possibly can and all of my friends that do the same. <laughs> so, yeah. right. Um, yeah. What, what do you carry by the way? Uh, so currently, currently I am carrying a single stack 1911, uh, in nine millimeter, uh, with a red dot on top of it. Normally, um, that one is just kind of getting finished up. So, uh, and I'm doing some work on my other one. Normally I will carry, a commander length 2011 uh 2011 which is a double stack 1911 platform uh in nine millimeter with a comp and a red dot on it and an x300 on it so there you go yeah a lot of gun i bring i bring all the gun i can open division uh, baby that's right that's right <laughs> which is really fun because if you want to you want to have some fun go shoot open division with a gun like that from appendix in your mm. carry gear it's I mean, me and a couple of buddies, we do it all the time. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Plus you get to shoot your carry gear in a, in a competition. That's, I think that's tons of fun. Um, <laughs> don't expect to win open division though. It's, it's right. probably not going to happen. <laughs> uh, what about, okay. So we talked about sites. We talked about recoil spring, which by the way, I would not have guessed that that was going to be a second thing out of your mouth. Uh, but what about things like triggers? Yep. So that's, that's the one I always go back and forth with between number two and number three, because mm. triggers are so important. The thing, the reason I tend to put it uh, down at number three, right, is you can learn to manage a less than optimized trigger. You absolutely can. Because let's face it, a good trigger, let's use, you know, I'll use Glock, for instance, a good trigger is going to cost you $150. 
125, $150. And I don't mean replacing the shoe or, or, you know, doing stuff like that. I mean like an actual trigger job or a properly sprung trigger cost you some money. Um, uh, the nice thing is there are some guns like the SIGs that come with better triggers than, uh, than some of the other guns. So you might luck out. Um, but honestly, here's the thing about triggers. Everyone thinks it's all about weight and it's not about weight. If it was all about weight, Ernest Langdon would not do the wonderful things that he can do. Jerry Mitchellack would never be able to do the amazing things that he can do, right? Uh, it's not about weight. It's about feel. It's about smoothness. It's it's about how the trigger breaks. It has very little to do with weight. I can shoot a five-pound trigger just as well as I can shoot a three-pound trigger. It just means I have to learn that trigger and how, how it feels and how I need to break that trigger in order to, uh, to make it work best. Um, I, yeah, I'm all about it. You absolutely should get a, a good trigger in your gut. It makes your life easier, way easier. And honestly, one of the biggest issues I, I tend to have to combat in classes is trigger management, how we manage the trigger. Um, you know, for a long time, uh, we, we live in a Glock world, right? And I can pick up three different Glocks and have three completely different triggers in that gun. Yeah. Right. One's going to be a nice, uh, it's about five and a half pounds rolling break, you know? Oh, okay. No distinct wall. And it just breaks. And I'm like, yeah, that, that that'll do shooter will probably have no problem. The next one, same, you know, I, they can be sequential serial numbers. The next one I pick up, you press and you're like, okay, that's not bad. And then a huge wall and you're like, oh my, yeah. and then you have to break over that. Right. Um, and and you've got a nice crisp glass rod break, uh, you know, trigger uh, out there. And honestly, when I set up a trigger, and this is the same, you know, uh, whether I'm doing a Glock trigger job or a 1911 trigger job, if I have my choice, I set them up with rolling brake triggers, mm -hmm. which means there's no real distinct wall to my triggers. Um, it, it requires, it's almost like an, uh, an, uh, revolver trigger, right? Where I apply pressure and I'm just applying pressure. It's, it's three pounds all the way through from start to finish. Uh, and then it breaks and you're like, Oh, okay, there it went. Um, but it's like that all the time. And that's, that's the big thing. One of the, the biggest things, honestly, accuracy issues I see with shooters, it has a lot to do with how their trigger is set up especially guys that have bought into this idea of this, this glass rod break trigger. Um, not worth it, not worth it at all. Um, you know, because every time it's, it's, it's like a pen, right? I see a guy and they get right there and then they're like, come on. All right. I'm right there. Go. And <laughs> why'd you do that? Uh, because I needed enough torque to get over the trigger. Oh, okay. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> you have now you have now missed incredibly low and left, or incredibly low and right as as a uh, as a left handed shooter, which really has nothing to do with how you're pressing the trigger. It just adds a stimulus to you or a, a point for yeah. the shooter that it tells them to do something, which then causes logical exactly. Yeah, you know, and that that then leads to the overall 
issue of, uh, you know, a failure in structure, uh, typically with their grip pressure or their upper body pressure or a pre-ignition type push, uh, that results in that, that mm-hmm. miss low left or low right. But yeah, setting up a good trigger. And you, I mean, you can do really good work with a four, five pound trigger. I mean, it's not my preferred weight for a trigger, but it, I mean, heck, I shot a 686 for a while just with an eight pound trigger in it, but it was eight pounds of just rolling fury. It was glorious, <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> guys can do great work. The poundage doesn't so much matter is my mm. point. Um, it's really, you know, how, how the trigger is set up and, and the smoothness of that trigger. That is my belief, at least. So if you're going to set your guns up, uh, specifically your plastic guns up, that is what to look for. Look for someone that knows, uh, you know, what they're doing and producing that type of a trigger. Yeah. I, I got to agree with you, man. You're speaking my language because and, and maybe it comes from my my younger years of like reading guns and ammo and handguns mag and, and all these, you know, gun magazines for years since I was a little kid. And like, you're like in search of this perfect glass break, you know, like super short, super crisp trigger. And, uh, I'll tell you till, till I put my most recent trigger in my 320 gray guns, Bruce Gray built 320 trigger. It's there's it's a rolling break, man. And it's like that that changed the world for yep. me. Because the previous trigger I was running was more of a wall prep snap, you know, break. And and uh it, it's changed my life as far as <laughs> running that trigger, man. You know, I was talking with someone recently and, and, and we had this conversation. And I said that, you know, essentially my default when I'm shooting is that my trigger finger is pretty much always moving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I have a three or four target array, you know, I'm going through those those targets and that trigger fingers, you know, regardless even of distance, that, that trigger finger is never really stopping. It's that I'm modulating the input on that trigger as is needed for, you know, I'm going from a, a five-yard target to a 15-yard or a 20-yard target. This is still moving. It's just... You know, on the five yard, it was slap, slap, and then going to 20, it's it's still moving through. It's just modulated itself. And it's so much easier to do that when you are when you can just keep applying pressure and just roll through that trigger. And 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 while that's happening, that's when the eyes are doing the work of there's my target, there's my sights or my dot. Okay, confirm everything's lined up. Yep, it's there. Keep that finger moving, bang, and away it goes. Um, that has, uh, that's made a big difference in my shooting, man. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, honestly, if, if we could, if we could get over this, uh, this glass rod break mentality, cause let's say we know where it comes from, right? We can, tr- we can track its lineage back to, and I hate to say it, it goes back to 1911 shooters, specifically bullseye 1911 shooters, because you could stage the trigger and you knew exactly where you needed to break that trigger. Right. If we could get over that and people would just give these rolling break triggers, some guys call them mushy, right? They're not really mushy. If you understand what's going on, especially like on a Glock, people with people realize Glocks are actually a double action trigger system. It's supposed to be like that. That wall isn't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we could just get over that, that fundamental idea 
and just give these these rolling break triggers a try I, and look at the results, I think people would be really surprised. Like, oh, wow, I guess I am way better with this trigger and maybe I should give it a little more of a try. And, yeah. you know, instead of just listening to, you know, someone telling me this is this is the way right so for for sure what doesn't work in my world or uh, and i think anyone's anybody's world is a trigger that's inconsistent or gritty like it's like stop go stop you know it's just like (laughs) yeah all over the place Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a a tough trigger to shoot (laughs) and and when they're bad they're just so bad Mm -hmm. so bad and you know, it's rough. It's rough for any shooter, especially now you take, uh, you know, someone that's just trying to learn to shoot and you give them that trigger and it, you can destroy a shooter's career right there. You know, if you give them a gun with a terrible trigger, right? Start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, uh, which forces them to ingrain bad habits already in them, which again, gives you that psychological, okay, here's where I stop the trigger. Now I break the trigger and now I'm doing all sorts of crazy stuff with it. Um, you know, who can be mad at them when they're frustrated and, and they're like, you know what? I don't think shooting's my thing. Uh, I'll, I'll just strap on a, you know, a, a, a J frame every now and again, when I go do my stuff and, and I'll be good. You know, I get your frustration. That's not the answer, um, but don't give up on it. You know, uh, I hate to say it, but normally those triggers can be found in more of the budget line guns and budget budgets are a thing, right? You buy as much gun as you can afford. And, and sometimes you just got to make that work. But if you understand that there, you can do good work with these heavy triggers, just make them smooth, you know? And honestly, listen, gunsmithing is a, a dying, uh, a dying thing. There aren't a lot of us left. And I teach at a gunsmithing college and it's getting fewer and fewer guys that are, that are going to be around in this industry find yourself a competent gunsmith because they can do this. And I guarantee you they can do it for cheaper than you're going to buy that whiz bang drop in trigger. That probably might not be the best thing for it. Um, you know, so that's just my advice on it. Yeah, man. Hey, we do have a question here from Johnny yeah. he says, uh, how do you look at tuning a concealed carry gun? I think he's any, he, I think he's asking uh, in terms of like from a legal standpoint, you know, uh, for, from modification, you know, modifying the gun. Uh, and if there's legal liability in doing so, what's your views on that? Sure. Uh, so first off, I am not a lawyer, right at all. So, uh, please do not take any legal advice from me whatsoever. (laughs) However, what I can tell you is to my knowledge, uh, no practical modification of a firearm has ever been an issue ever to my knowledge. Uh, and what do I mean by that, right? You modified your sights to to be better, right? Okay, show me where that's ever been a deciding factor legally where that's a problem. I don't see it. The only time I see really a legal issue um, with this, again, not a lawyer. I have no room to stand on legalities of anything. But um, when something is modified number one, incorrectly, right? Or number two, irresponsibly, 
right? You decide, oh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make this Glock 17 a Glock 18. Watch me <laughs> do it, right? That's where your your legal issues are going to come from. But I, I don't know of anything, um, any reasonable modification that would ever be an issue issue for a concealed carry firearm anywhere, right? Uh, now, that being said, <laughs> there are certain responsibilities that come in when you start modifying a firearm. Don't put a two-pound trigger in your carry gun if you don't know how to manage a two-pound trigger safely, reliably, uh, you know, and professionally. Because let me tell you, I'll be the first one to say not everyone needs a two-pound trigger in their carry gun, nor would that maybe be a great idea. Um, I'm also not saying that there are people out there that shouldn't put two-pound triggers in their carry gun. I, I know a couple of dudes that have them. I don't think it's a great idea. My carry guns, every gun I shoot to include my my competition guns have over a two-pound trigger. I mean, they're not, they're not white. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but what ends up being a problem is the negligence applied to those modifications. You were negligent and put your finger on the trigger and now Timmy got shot, right? It wasn't because you had a two-pound trigger. It's because you were negligent and you put your finger on the trigger. That's why Timmy got shot. You broke a bunch of rules and bad things happened, right? Not because you modified your gun. Now you make a modification to your gun. And again, it turns your Glock 17 into a Glock 18. That's a different problem. And mm-hmm. no no reputable gunsmith, no serious gunsmith uh, would ever condone that kind of action, right? Um, right? And uh, again, I'm... I'm n- I get we're in a plug and play world, but not everyone should be plugging and playing. (laughs) Okay. There are safety concerns with everything you do. And I get it. Glocks. You can, you can interchange all the parts on Glocks. Let me tell you, no, you cannot interchange all the parts on Glocks. I got a handful of connectors and, and trigger bars that do not work together. Right. And they're all the same part, all the same part number, all the same, everything. They will not work together properly. Right. So, um, number one, if you're going to make any modification to a gun, including changing your sights, make sure you know what you're doing. If you're going to start messing with fire control groups, seek professionals to do it. That is my suggestion to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good stuff, man. And, and I agree, you know, that, uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any cases where modifications have, have been a, a you know, major determining factor in the outcome of a case. Uh, I, and also, you know, I look at it as I got to win the physical battle first, right? And if if a practical modification, and, and so I think everything you talked about is is right up that alley, you know, as far as making sure you have a some kind of good sighting system. You, you know, I say I say system because you might be running red dot, you might be running irons. Uh, having sure. the gun be tuned, good idea. Uh, trigger. Good idea. If it, you know, if it makes, if it makes, if it helps me shoot better, that's a good thing because that means I've got a physical threat. I'm putting rounds where I need to in as little time as it takes to do so in a responsible manner. Um, the other thing I'll add that we haven't touched on, I'm, I'm sure it's up your alley as well, um, but that would be grip. Grip for me is huge. Like contact with that gun, and I see a lot of factory guns. I there are some that I I think are quite appalling. I look at the 
these very smooth slabs of plastic on the side. And I go, how am I going to hang on to that thing? You know? Um, so, you know, if I can grip that gun, hold it steady, maintain control of it all throughout this shooting cycle, if I can see what I need to see with regards to my sighting system and then have a great trigger that allows me to apply the, the appropriate pressure smoothly like it's 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 all a system that whole thing everything works and has to work together for optimal success right vision seeing that means we can aim and put gun where it needs to be trigger allows us to to press it correctly smoothly not and you know hopefully uh, uh, uh preventing some anticipation issues and then hanging on to that sucker throughout all that process like bam like there we go like we got something happening you know what i mean yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up grip, right? Because grip is such a huge thing in my class. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about grip pressures, but just the grips on your gun, like, yeah, it is appalling what, what some of these guns, defensive guns come with. Like, uh, bro, that's, that's slick aluminum on the side. <laughs> you think this is a mirror and you're just going to be like, ah, oh, it's stuck to my hand. I swear. <laughs> like, no, that's not, that's not how this works. Um, you know, and I have, uh, uh, admittedly the, the grips I use or the stocks I use on my guns are extremely aggressive. Um, very, 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 very aggressive. Uh, I find the most aggressive thing I can get and that I, whittle it and make it more aggressive if I can. Right. Cause I want, I want my hands to stick to that gun no matter what. Um, but yeah, I mean, grip modification is going to be a huge thing. You know, I'm a big fan for the plastic guns. I do. Um, uh, basically I apply silicon carbide to, mm-hmm. to the grips of the gun. Um, and actually a buddy of mine, Alex, uh, Alex Chu, uh, he's a gunsmith over in, California, he, he showed me a really great modification. We offer it now, um, as a, as what we call the chew mod, which is a way to stop that silicon carbide from flaking off because anyone that's ever had silicon carbide applied to their gun knows you've got about a year of heavy use before that's got to be stripped off and reapplied, you know, hence why everyone uses grip tape, but, um, Come to Arizona and shoot one day with your grip tape on. And let me tell mm. you how that doesn't work at all. I, I, so. I already know that one. <laughs> <laughs> when you have grip tape that's supposed to be grippy, but the tape is just sli- sliding around <laughs> on the grip. Yep. <laughs> kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> yep. Does not work. But let me tell you, you got a great hold on that grip tape. It was stuck to your hand. Guns moving like this, but yep. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Learned that one the hard way myself. I was <laughs> very surprised, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Grip's a big one, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. We, we have uh, I mean, we're actually probably a little bit over time, but uh, I, I want to ask you now why 1911 or 2011s for you? Like, why is that your thing? Why is that what you carry? Uh, why is that, you know, the thing that you're big on? Two world wars, bro. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, honestly, so I, for, for a while there, I had kind of a love hate relationship with the 1911. Um, I, I, I hate to say I learned to shoot, but I really did kind of learn to shoot pistols. 
uh, on a 1911. Um, you know, I didn't learn to shoot pistols in the military. Uh, I, I went to a, a class uh, before I was even in the military, actually, and I had a 1911. And I was like, all right, teach me to shoot this thing, right? So I kind of grew up on the 1911 shooting pistols. And then, uh, you know, I, I moved away from it after I got out of the military because nine mil was, was King, right? Uh, no one shot 45 anymore. And I was like, okay, I, sh- I shoot nine mil. So I shot uh, Smith and Wesson M and P forever, forever and ever. Right. And then uh, shot some Glocks. I shot a Glock 22 for a while, which I don't recommend to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, I shot a SIG 226 for a while. I shot an HKP 30 for a while. Um, and, all sorts of things, right? So I, I I shot a lot of guns, and somehow I kept gravitating back to the 1911, and and just I it it felt right in my hand. And I'm sure looking back, it's because well, yeah, it was really like your first experience with with a, a pistol was a 1911. So every gun you touch, you're like, man, it doesn't feel like a 1911. This feels weird. And then you get used to it. But every time I pick up a 1911, I'm like, yes, this feels right. All right, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of, and I fought it for a long, long time. Um, and then, you know, m- my big thing was, right. It's a 1911. It's a single stack gun, right. At the time, if, if, you know, I didn't, the first nine mil night, the first true nine mil 1911 I ever owned, I bought or, uh, from Springfield and it did not work out of the box ever. Not once, never could not, never got through a mag. So I was like, Nope. So it was always 1911 single stack 45 ACP. And, uh, you know, I had learned enough in my life at the time to know that maybe, um, single stack 45 wasn't the best option for carrying a gun at least what my thoughts were about carrying a gun i wanted more more pews just in case right so um at the time the only 20 or only defensive 2011 i knew out there uh nighthawk was building them as their flx mod and they only built i think 100 of them right and i have number 93 i think 93 or 96 right so i i got that thing and i was like yes this this is everything uh and i i shot that thing you know kind of makes me sad because they they were kind of rare (laughs) but i i I mean I, i shot the crap out of that thing uh you know and I really just kind of re-fell in love with the system after shooting that. Uh, the thing that draws me back to the 19... And I mean, granted, fast forward, uh, a gunsmith, a pistol smith is judged by building a 1911, let's face it, right? You might have the guy that builds high powers, right? Okay, he builds a great high power, right? Or the guy that builds only, you know, uh, single action army type you know, wheel guns and stuff like that. There's very few guys, but when you are talking about building a gun from scratch, pretty much everyone's like, yeah, 1911s, you build them from scratch. That's how it works. Very few other guns are built from scratch. They're just rebuilt. Um, So I was like, yeah, I love this thing. But the thing about the 1911 and the 2011 for me, right? I can't find a gun out there that has a better trigger in it in existence i just can't and i mean it's it's just the 
the mechanics of the trigger, right? We teach shooters, or at least a lot of us were taught as shooters. You got to press that trigger straight to the rear. Well, hinge triggers don't go straight to the rear. And look, pretty much every gun out there has a hinge trigger, except the 1911, right? It actually goes to the rear and straight to the rear. So that was always a big thing for me. Like, wow, I can do some crazy stuff with this gun. The way the barrels are fit, and I get it. Like a lot of guys will argue about, oh, it's it's not a great barrel lockup system because it uses a link and you know, uh, the, the high power system, which is basically what every other gun in existence currently today uses. It's a much better system. Yeah, sure. But I can do amazing things with the accuracy on this gun because of the way the barrels are fit. Um, so just all the things about the 1911, the manual thumb safety, I love thumb safeties on guns. I mean, my plastic guns have thumb safeties on them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I love it. I love having that extra that extra uh level especially you know i i I stick the gun in my pants i like having a little bit more safety i'm good with that right Uh, not that there's anything wrong with not having a manual thumb safety you know doing everything correctly it's just a it's a little mental thing for me like i like having a manual thumb safety on my gun um let's face it the 1911 just looks cool (laughs) i mean it's a cool looking gun Um, but that's really not it. Like if I, if I found tomorrow that I shot another gun better than I shoot 1911s or 2011s, I would start shooting those guns. Um, really it comes down to, to my personal performance with the 1911. Don't get me wrong. You can, you can train yourself to be great on any gun out there, almost any gun out there. Right. Uh, you can you can develop those skills. I mean, people do great work with all sorts of guns out there. But for me, for me, the 1911 and the 2011 are really where it's at for me as far as the feel, the performance, the things I can do with them uh, just feels right <laughs> to me. Uh, everything about them feels right to me. So uh, and I shoot them better than literally anything I have ever shot in my life. And that's based on metrics, not just, I feel like I shoot this gun better. I got the numbers, right? It takes me so much work to be able to accomplish this task with a M&P, Glock, SIG, HK, blah, blah, blah. It takes me this much work to do it with a 1911, 2011. Okay, I'm going to do this because it's way less work. So mm-hmm. that's the thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. Like maybe that's where I'll end up one day because, cause I, 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 I'm a believer of that as far as I want to shoot, I want to run the thing that I shoot the best for sure. Right. And, uh, for me, I'm, I'm kind of beyond the, how a gun feels or how a gun fits. It, it's, it's, it's more than like, cause to me that stuff's ambiguous and, and, sure. and likely doesn't make the difference that people think it makes for me. It's yeah. A trick, like a really good trigger on a 1911. You're exactly right. It's hard to imagine a better trigger. So how do I get that? <laughs> there's only one platform that runs a trigger pretty much, you know, like that. So, I mean, there's some things that come close, but there's nothing that is quite like a 1911 trigger. So, it's always yeah. amazing to me how every, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that have marketed triggers 
for their guns. And they're like, it's just like a 1911 trigger in our gun. It's like, <laughs> hmm, why, why wouldn't I just shoot the 1911 then if I could just get that? Why am I trying to turn everything into that trigger? And I get it. They're, they're you know, perceived reasons, uh, which may or may not be uh, correct. Uh, as to why someone would want to choose another gun. But um, yeah, it's it just always, I think it's funny, you know, and here's the thing. I would be the first one to absolutely admit this. 1911s and 2011s are absolutely not for everyone. Yeah. Absolutely not for everyone. You know, they are, they are expensive because you cannot pick up a $400 1911 and trust your life to it. Period. You cannot do that. Um, there are zero of them in existence that I would trust my life to, uh, really, you know, to get the performance, you're going to spend money. You're mm -hmm. going to spend money, but there's nothing for the money out there that matches the performance like the 1911, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's not for everyone. It, you have got to kind of know what you're doing as an end user. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily a beginner's gun for sure. Yep. They don't, they don't field strip as easily. There's a lot different parts, you know, they just a lot, there's a lot going on that you, I'm with there that you should be more familiar uh, with the platform and how to maintain it and how to keep it operating. Uh, because yeah, I, I don't have that knowledge currently. I mean, maybe a few things, but I've got one 1911 to my name and it's nothing special. <laughs> so, and it doesn't get shot very often. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Maybe one day we'll pick up one of these fancy ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I shot a friend's uh, Rick Hebert built 2011. I don't know if you're familiar with Hebert. He's oh, a Colorado really that, that uh, builds uh, custom uh, 19 and 2011s. Um, and you know it, it. The words that came out of, out of my mouth after shooting it was, "It's almost like cheating." You know, yep. it was like, "Well, there's my sight on the." I was shooting a plate rack, right? <laughs> there's my sight on the plate. Bing. Well, there it is again. Bing. Oh, you know, it's just like it just. I mean, for one thing, that gun was very well built, very well tuned. So it's the gun cycled and the sights came right back, and then you had this. Very nice, short, light trigger. <laughs> so, yep. I mean, it, it just makes it so much easier. Well, um, getting back to, you know, here we are on the Concealed Carry Podcast. Uh, I, I think the big takeaways, and we, we'll probably have to just have you back, AJ, because uh, I feel like we can yes. talk about a lot more stuff. But, uh, um, you know, there, there are some things that we can do to our guns that, I think are practical and make sense. Um, I, I think people, we, we should exercise caution in doing things that we're not experienced or have expertise in doing, um, you know, and so by all means, like I'll tell you this much after trying to install some different drop in triggers and, and this and that, and some of my guns, my, my competition guns are gray guns, built guns. And by that, I mean, I sent them to Bruce gray. I say, do your thing. I'm not going to touch it because I could do it. I could technically take everything apart and reassemble it and have it work, but it still will not work as good as it will work. If I have the, the professional do it. And 
I'm guessing you run into that as well, AJ, that you probably get guns that come into your shop that people are like, it just, it, it needs help. And you start digging in there and you're finding, you know, this janky thing and that thing there. And somebody did this other thing. <laughs> and you, before you know it, you're probably rebuilding the thing because it, it's not salvageable because people have probably tried to, you know, do their, their home Dremel gunsmithing jobs. <laughs> sometimes, <it>. sometimes <laughs> I was making it more reliable. Well, <laughs> you cut the barrel off. <laughs> But at the same time, you know, getting back to, you know, we need, we need sites that we can see, that we can see well in a variety of lighting conditions uh, and, and preferably, you know, that we can see at speed and as things are cycling, that we, we pick it up early in the, in the recovery process. We can get back on target and, and fire our next shot. We want uh, a gun that, that is tuned well. Um, such an interesting, you know, concept. Cause again, this was not something I expected to come out of your mouth as your number two pick. Uh, and that is, I mean, what would you say there for someone that doesn't, cause it's not rocket science to replace recoil springs. Right. Sure. But I mean, let's just say you've got a stock Glock 17, you know, with a 16, 17, whatever, 18 pound spring. Would you just recommend maybe trying something, a, a pound or two lighter and seeing how that works and, seeing how it cycles and also are there companies that you would send people to, to look in, maybe look for some of those types of uh, aftermarket recoil spring products. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so for most of the nine mil guns, okay. And this is what I'll tell you guys. I'll tell you what I recommend and I'll tell you where I end up most of the time. I typically recommend guys for your standard, like Glock 17 style gun, start with a 15 pound recoil spring. And then start working your way down. Where do I end up? I normally end up at a 13. But there are other things going on in the gun that you need to be aware of. So start with the 15 and see how that goes first. Um, For Glocks, you know, companies like ISMI are kind of the gold standard of recoil springs. Um, they're, they're pretty much who I would recommend for Glocks. Everything else, Wolf, W-O-L-F-F, uh, their springs, I use them for pretty much everything. Um, you know, everything but recoil springs for, for, for Glocks, they, they make it. Uh, they, they've got it, and they're what I suggest. And they have the poundages and everything laid out there, and it's very easy. Uh, mm-hmm. But those are the two those are the two companies I would absolutely suggest if you're going to start, start playing with that, but start with a 15, start with a 15, see how it feels, uh, work your way down. Probably never going to need to go below a 13. Um, cause mm-hmm. at that point we really do start, uh, uh, depending on the gun, we can get away with a 13. That's why I say work your way down. Uh, some guns, they're not going to like the 13. They're not going to function perfectly with the 13. So you may need a 14 or a 15. So mm-hmm. that's why I say that. Yeah. Yep. Excellent advice. Uh, that sounds very reasonable to me. Uh, I actually run a 12 pounder in my 320 X5, um, yep. but the load I'm using works well with that. When I'm shooting uh, uh, a little bit light, because I'm running like 147, 150 grain bullets in mine, mm-hmm. and it works very, very well. Uh, but sometimes I'll train because of current conditions with ammo with uh uh like a 115 or 124 grain 
bullet and uh, 13 or sometimes a, it kind of depends, but yeah, right. I think that's pretty sweet, a pretty good sweet spot for me as well. 13 to 14, somewhere in that range on uh, like the, the 115 grain, like cheap stuff seems to work really well with my 14 pound spring. That's where I'm at with it. Yeah. So, I will say the gun design, the way the guns are designed does play in, which is, you know, Glocks, yeah. uh, you're not going to be able to get away with like a 12 pounder most yeah. of the time. M&Ps, you're almost absolutely not going to be able to get around, uh, get away with a 12 pounder because there's yeah. other things happening. Uh, the SIGs, sure. 12 pounder sounds like you've pretty much got it figured out for you which yeah. is good, but just understand that you got to, you got to test it in your gun guys. Got to test yep. it in your gun. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, we, we, we should let you go. I've kept you plenty long enough and uh, guys, uh, there's been some great comments too, as far as like people saying it's a great show, good stuff. Um, so, you know, and also a comment here from Randy he says he actually found some self-defense nine millimeter while working in Vegas this week. Woohoo. Woohoo. Man, we're, we're cheering for you, Randy. Because uh, anytime you stumble upon anything, that, that's that's a good day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, AJ, uh, seriously, man, we should have you back. We should talk some more shooting stuff. Because again, I know that uh, you're you're really an amazing shooter and instructor as well. Uh, we have some mutual friends, obviously, and that you know, including some guys that speak very highly of you. By that, I mean guys down there at active self-protection and I, I know you've been through their instructor program too, right? Uh, I have not. No, oh, I thought I, you uh, had last year. Nope. Nope. I have not been through their instructor program. Uh, I, I hear it's an excellent, excellent program. I know Sam uh, Middlebrook pretty much runs that, uh, that program for them. Uh, fantastic. No, I've, I've taught at their conference the last couple of years yep. Uh, yep. for, for John and everyone. Uh, great time. Great great people, great instructors, great shooters. Um, so yeah, but no, I have not been through their program. Gotcha. But you are a graduate. I mean, you've been through, uh, uh, Scott Jedlinski's, uh, red dot, uh, instructor program, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> well, sort of, sort of. Okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, uh, actually, uh, <laughs> when Scott, when Scott and I met, uh, the instructor program didn't actually exist. Mm, um, sure. right. So, uh, it, and I was fortunate enough that he asked me to teach with him as, uh, as an AI, uh, for him, uh, right. several years ago. And I've been doing it ever since. So. Yeah. That, that explains why I, I picked up on you. I mean, teaching essentially, uh, uh, you know, some, some classes, uh, on your own, some red dot courses and also doing some stuff with him, which I think is fantastic. I'm a big fan of Scott. Uh, so Good stuff, AJ. We'll cheer you on, man. Uh, look forward to you doing more great stuff, and uh, you know, both on the shooting side and on the gun building side. And you know, anything we can do to help, let us know. And folks, I'll tell you the one thing our viewers and listeners can do is head on over to practicalperformance.org. And if you got a special project you want to get done, you know, you can talk to AJ about that. Uh, anything else you want to mention as far as like, is there any social media or any, anything else you want to put out there? Uh, yeah. To get your name out there, AJ. Yeah. So, uh, obviously you can go over to practicalperformance.org. Um, and, and that's, you know, there's, there's some instructor stuff on there, but there's a lot of gunsmithing stuff on there. Uh, you can check us out on YouTube under practical performance training, which uh, is kind of, uh, it's our old channel, but it's going to 
get a pretty big revamp here pretty soon. Um, Instagram, you can check us out. Uh, Recoil Web uh, TV uh, or Recoil TV, you can check us out on there as well. Um, and then we have our podcast as well, which is the Practicast, uh, which you can find pretty much anywhere podcasts are. Uh, so, and right. yeah, and all that stuff is mostly just shooting oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cause that's, you know, the gunsmithing stuff is great. And I think it, it really, it all just drives to being better at the shooting stuff. So I'd love to come back and talk to you mostly about the shooting stuff. Cause I think there's a lot, a lot we could talk about there. For sure. For sure. Well, let's do it, man. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast with me today. And uh, so until next time, we'll let everybody go. And a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. <laughs>